If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd encourage you to go ahead and open them to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. That's where we're going to be. Now, we are kind of just as by way of reminder, I guess, we're getting to a tipping point in Jesus's ministry in the Gospel of Luke. Because what's starting to happen is that now everything Jesus does is not just being questioned, there's an attack with it. It's not just a question about, uh, can you explain this or, or, or can we ask you something we're trying to trick you? Now it's, a, it's an assault against Jesus and his ministry, particularly by the religious leaders. And you may have heard this saying before that no good deed goes unpunished. You're about to see it right here in this passage of scripture that we're going to look at. That's exactly what is happening. In the beginning of Jesus's ministry, the first healings draw, I mean, just utter amazement and shock from people, right? They, they see what Jesus is doing and everybody's just kind of fired up about that. And who's ever seen anything like this? Has anything ever been done like this before? But now... There's another undercurrent that's taking as people are scrutinizing everything that he does and they're really trying to discredit everything that he does. And so I want you to see this as we look at what it means to be part of a divided house and how that house cannot stand. Luke chapter 11, verse 14 this morning. Now he was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon came out of the man who had been mute, spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, he drives out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And others, as a test, were demanding him a sign from heaven. Knowing their thoughts, he told them, every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction. And a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I drive out demons by Beelzebul. And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons drive them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his estate, his possessions are secure. But when one stronger than he attacks and overpowers him, he takes from him all of his weapons he trusted in and divides up his plunder. Anyone who is not with me is against me and anyone who does not gather with me scatters. Jesus encountered this man who could not speak and this condition is attributed to a demonic force in his life. He is possessed by a demon. It's interesting to note though that not every medical malady in the scripture is attributed to demonic activity. Jesus understood that this one was different. Sometimes we see people cleansed from things and, and the answer is, is not really given how they got there. there. There are lepers that are cleansed and it's never said that these people have a demonic force of leprosy that has afflicted their bodies or a paralytic who is, who is healed when his four friends lower him down, not attributed to demonic forces. Sometimes, you, you may remember that Jesus said that healings only had to do with the glory of God. Do you remember when his disciples asked him, who sinned, this man or his parents, that, that he has been made, been made blind? And Jesus said, well, it's, it's not what you think it is. It's so that the glory of God may be displayed in this moment in what's happening. But in this case, 
it was, it was attributed to demonic action. Now, there's two sides to what happens here. What I've just told you is carried forward with some. Remember we said that in the beginning, everybody was amazed. Here it says the crowds were amazed. When you think about the crowds, you can think about Baptist people, just common folk. That's who we are, right? It's just, it's just common people who would be out there. They were amazed by this. But there's this kind of uh, aristocracy, so to speak, of religious leaders that make up a ruling body and they're filled, it's more people than you can imagine. It's scribes, it's Pharisees, it's Sadducees that all make up this, this group of people and what's happening is they're now going to come at him. Now I should point out something very important to you this morning. Amazement is not the same thing as salvation. It's not the same thing. The crowds were amazed by this. Certainly they were, they were I mean, who wouldn't be? If, if you saw someone who you knew who had a, a physical limitation in their life and all of a sudden in an instant that limitation is gone, you would certainly, I mean, you would be amazed too. But there are plenty of things that you're amazed by that you don't put your trust in. Plenty of things. You see and go, that, that is incredible. People can take a rocket ship into space right now without NASA. That's incredible. But not everybody in here is signing up for that. You know what I mean? You're amazed. I mean, I'm amazed by it. But I'm not going. There are a lot of people that are amazed by this, but they're not ready to receive him as Messiah. The crowds are building. They, they keep coming around, but they're not ready to receive him as Messiah. On the other hand, you have this group of people, the religious leaders who are absolutely being eaten alive and consumed by jealousy because they don't want anybody to follow after Jesus. And so what do they do? They issue a challenge. A challenge to his authority. How does he have the ability to do this? Well, we can't say that it came from God because if we say it's from God, then obviously why aren't we following after him? So the next best thing to do is say, this man has healed somebody by the power of Satan, basically. Beelzebul. Now, sometimes in the scripture, you'll read this and it says, Beelzebub, Beelzebul, Beelzebub. And it goes back to the Old Testament where the, 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 the writing of it is just a little bit different. It's Beelzebub. You hear Beelzebub. I know my East Tennessee thing, it's hard sometimes. Beelzebub, Beelzebub. E in the first one, A in the second one, right? And where does this come from? Well, the, 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 the greatest explanation of it is, it's actually found in, in the book of 2 Kings. And I just wanna read it for you because it's really a startling story that happens in chapter one of 2 Kings. After Ahab's death, Moab rebelled against Israel and Ahaziah had fallen through the latticed window of his upstairs room in Samaria and was injured. So he sent messengers instructing them, go inquire of Baalzebub, the God of Ekron, whether I will recover from this injury. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, go and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, is, there, is it because there is no God in Israel you're going to inquire of Baalzebub, the God of Ekron? Well, when we read this, it's really that Baalzebub is one of the pagan gods listed there. And in this case, in 2 Kings, 
He's called the Lord of the flies is, is what people were worshiping. It's a Philistine God. And so you understand that the prophet of God, Elijah, comes and says, hey, I mean, you gotta go all the way over there and deal with a lesser God to find out how you're going to recover or whether you will recover or whether this is permanent. You don't need to do that. Well, this Lord of the flies, the Lord of the demonic, that's the same kind of thing that's carried forward here. And what it is is that the Bible never ever disputes that there are other gods in this world. Have you noticed that? There are other gods people worship, but they all have one thing in common. Where's the source of their power? It's satanic. You, you, you see it here. They're calling him the Lord of the demons, the, 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 the Lord, uh, that he's doing this by the Lord of the demons, the Lord of the flies, the Lord of these other gods and these things. It's basically an assassination attempt on his character. It's interesting because when Jesus hears this, he begins to refute their claims with something we think the Bible is often missing, but it's not. It's logic. Read the Bible, study it, and you begin to see that there's a logical progression to things. And let's look back at verse 17 and 18 and look at what Jesus said. Jesus knew their thoughts, so he told them every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction. A house divided against itself falls. If Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say, I drive them out by Beelzebul. What's happening? Logically, you cannot stand a civil war when you're trying to hold on to your ground. You cannot stand a civil war when you're trying to take ground and hold on to it. And Jesus is saying they're enemies opposed to one another and they can't conquer one another and be of the same house. Jesus asked this question in this argument. He says, you know, you guys have to understand that the, the way that your Jewish people are casting out demons, it's gotta be the same way that I'm doing It's the power of God. Now this goes back to Solomon. There were, there were Jewish people that, that had the ability and healers helping people with their maladies and so Jesus says, why do you accept them as from God and me as the devil? What's the difference here? I was recently talking to one of my friends in the pastoral ministry about another friend of ours. And I said about this young man, I said, that guy has more talent in his little finger, God-given talent in his little finger than I'll ever have in all of my life. And Jesus says, you know what? When the finger of God shows up, it casts out these demons. How powerful is the finger of God? Have you thought about that? I mean, if we talk about this person has more talent in their little finger than I'll ever have, how powerful is the finger of God? Well, I don't really know. Because when God speaks, it's pretty powerful. He speaks and galaxies appear. They burst forth. Just when he speaks, galaxies appear. When he speaks, seas part. When he speaks, people are raised from the dead. When he speaks, soldiers fall down in the Garden of Gethsemane. I mean, they, they literally just fall back all over one another. He doesn't have to touch them. I mean, think about what happens. So when he speaks, demons must flee. How powerful is the finger of God? What he's saying here is, 
I've got enough power right here. It's come down. And the finger of God has the power to drive these things out. And you say that it's of the devil. It doesn't work that way. Why? Because a house divided against itself cannot fall. Abraham Lincoln, quoting Christ. He talks about that in the Civil War, doesn't he? When he makes that address, getting ready uh, to run for president, understanding that, that things are on the cusp of civil war, Lincoln says, a house divided will not stand. We will either go forward together or we must separate and be something different than what we are. Jesus is saying, it's illogical, you cannot do it. I can't be of the devil and drive out the devil, so what? I must be something different. Sometimes in your life, you get to a moment or a point of no return. It's the proverbial line that's drawn in the sand where once you step across it, there's no going back. You, you, you can't stay here and be there, right? It, it doesn't work that way. You can't stay here and be there. And I, I understand that in our lives, these things happen from time to time where there's a moment where the Lord just draws the line in the sand and he says, you're either coming forward or you're stuck. And Jesus is saying to these people, you're going to have to recognize me for who I am. Well, who is he? Son of God, Messiah. We just sang it. Lamb, roaring lion. I clearly remember one of those line in the sand moments for me in my life as a collegiate student. I'd been a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I have no doubt that I'd come to a saving faith in Christ as a young man, but there was something different in college. The Lord was was calling me to go to a deeper relationship with him. And we were out walking around our campus one night, a big group of us, and the line in the sand came out of nowhere. I, I never saw it coming. I wasn't ready for it. I hadn't been thinking about it. I was just minding my own business. And the line in the sand was drawn, and it was like the Lord said, you're either coming forward or you're stuck. What's it going to be? You've had those kind of experiences where the Lord says, you must cross over here. And Jesus says it. It's a point of no return. In verse 23, he says, anyone who's not with me is against me and anyone who does not gather with me scatters. And I think that means for us this morning that there is no middle ground. Sometimes as believers, we fall back into middle ground and we try to straddle the fence so to speak, but the problem is you're, you're getting shot at from both sides. It's a very uncomfortable place to be, isn't it? But for those of us who are not in Christ, sometimes we believe we can be amazed by the things we read in scripture or that we can have our affections placed into Christ. But Jesus never asked for your affection. He never really asked for your amazement. He asked for your life. He asked for the lordship of your life. And it's quite a different thing, isn't it? Because this morning, if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, let me help you to understand, I'm not drawing the line in the sand. That was drawn 2,000 years ago. It's not me drawing the line in the sand. It's Jesus drawing the line in the sand. And he says, there is no middle ground here. You're either with me or, or you're not. You, you can't have it kind of both ways where you vacillate between these things. You're either with me or you're not. And so it's worth asking, 
Where do you stand with Jesus this morning? Have you crossed the line into a relationship with Christ? Or are you opposing him? It's funny because when I talk to people about these things, nobody is like, I actively oppose Jesus. There are some people that do, but the majority of people are like, I mean, Jesus is fine. He's good. Whatever. He's a good teacher. Moral. We can learn a lot from how he treated people. Those are important things, aren't they? But, but Jesus is not asking you what you think about him in terms of, do you like his teaching or do you have a favorable outlook on Jesus? Jesus is saying, I'm the Lord, the God, the Messiah. What are you gonna do about that? Because if he's Lord, then he must be Lord of all of our lives. And if he's not Lord, then there's something else there. So maybe the question is, what are you doing with Jesus? Are you fighting him? Are you rejecting him? Are you just kind of sitting back and and thinking that you can live how you want to as long as you have a favorable opinion about Jesus? It's not that way. Let me explain. Because I think many times in our lives what we end up doing is try to explain away the lordship of Christ. Mark Hopkins in the 1800s wrote about this and spoke about this. And this was later popularized by the famous Christian author C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. He popularized this. I want to read this. So, so give me a moment because it's a little bit of a long quote, but I think Lewis gets to the heart of the matter here. I'm trying to prevent here, this is the quote, anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him being Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, on level with a man who says he is a poached egg. That's a funny thing. He's a poached egg. Maybe it's not so funny in the days in which we're living where we say we're all kinds of things. I don't know. Lunacy. Let's read that again. He'd either be a lunatic on level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let's not come out with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He didn't leave that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend and consequently, however strange or terrifying, unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the fact or the view that he was God. There's three things and maybe a fourth that we might add. Liar, lunatic, legend, which Lewis leaves off, which later people added, or Lord. Liar, lunatic, legend, or Lord. If Jesus is a liar, then everything he said is for nothing. I mean, there, there's, no, there's no point to it. And us following a moral code is awful. Let me, let me just help you with that. Say it with me. It's awful. So, you didn't, you didn't. We're going to do it together. One, two, three. It's awful. Why is it awful? Because God's not interested in reforming your morality. That, that doesn't do anything. 
The Bible doesn't talk about reforming our morality. It talks about new life. There's regeneration that takes place in our life. As Warren Wearsby wrote so long ago, you know, God doesn't want the reformation of your soul. He wants the regeneration of your soul. There's a big difference. It's massive. Reformed people are religious. Reformed people kind of do some of the right things. But that's not what Jesus was after, is a club of reformed people who understood the right things and they kind of just did the right things for the right thing's sake. That, that doesn't get you anywhere with a God who's offended by sin that we've all committed. So if Jesus is a liar and we're just following some moral code, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, I mean, what a waste. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, what does he say? If Christ is not raised from the dead, what are we? We're fools to be pitied above everyone because you are wasting your time this morning. It's foolish. It could be that he was a madman, a lunatic, bent on getting people to follow him to their own destruction. We've seen that from time to time, haven't we? As a student in junior high school, we had that back then, they started this thing in our junior high school where they put televisions in all the rooms. It was called Channel One. One of the first things that I remember watching on Channel One was the standoff between the federal government and a group of people called the Branch Davidians in Texas. When you watch what their leader was doing, that's, that's lunacy. Follow me here. We're gonna compound ourselves in and we're going to burn down on this thing. I mean, and I'm taking you all with me. That's crazy talk, isn't it? So Jesus could be a lunatic. Maybe that was the whole goal is, is he's trying to damn us all to hell. And by following him, that's what happens but that would lead to destruction and not life in people. And he surely wouldn't be setting free people afflicted by Satan himself. So then it's a legend. How many of you remember Paul Bunyan? With my double blade axe and my hobnail boots, I go where the timber's tall. You remember this one? A big blue ox. Is Jesus a legend? As Pastor Kirk says, legends are good. I mean, there, there's, some, there's some things that, that sometimes the legends build into the fabric of a society and, and it's good, but we all know that that's not real. If you didn't, I'm very sorry to have been the spoiler this morning. <laughs> it's not real. But there's a historical record of Christ. not just by Christians. So then what are we left with? We must be left with the fact that we have to deal with the Lordship of Christ. We must be left with the fact that Jesus came and died and did something for us that was miraculous. What is that? The Bible describes our relationship with God as being estranged. It, it's, 
it's broken in some way that there's now a, a gap between our relationship with God and the way it was intended to be. There's an estrangement there. What caused that? Is it that God did something to us that is so morally reprehensible that Jesus had to come and make it right? Or is it the fact that we all stand condemned as guilty sinners before a righteous God? Well, what we know about the character of God, we see in Christ. Perfect love, perfect obedience, care and compassion for people, never seeking his own. Even on the, I mean, even on the night before Jesus is crucified, we find him eating with his disciples, his inner group of 12. And what's the first thing that he does when they get there? He removes his outer clothing and places a towel around himself and begins to get down on his hands and knees and wash their feet as a servant. So the problem must be our problem and not God's problem. Now, most of the problems that are created in your life by you require you to get out of those problems, don't they? They require you to do something to get out of those problems. But this is a problem that you can't fix on your own. It doesn't work that way. In fact, this is a problem that the more you try to fix it, the worse that it gets. Because the best that you can do is mess it up. And it's already messed up. And so what begins to happen is we begin to think, well, I'm gonna take some of the teachings of Jesus and I'm going to start applying those to my life and I'm going to, to try to be a better person. Again, the better person is not what God wants. He wants you to be a new person. That's why baptism is such a beautiful sign for us. And if you've ever wondered, you say, why are you Baptists so hardcore on baptizing by immersion? It's because it's the only thing that pictures what Jesus said to do. It's the only way. You walk in the baptistry as one person. Notice what the pastors say. It's some version of this. You're buried with him in his death and raised to walk in new life. It's an identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that took place. And so for us, the, the remedy is that God saw that we had messed it up and he didn't leave it for us to fix, thank God. He sent Christ to die in our place. And the scripture says that everyone who calls on the name of Christ will be saved. Now, not call on him because we're amazed. I'm definitely amazed. Not call on him because we think he's kind of cool. Jesus is cool. Not call on him because we have an affection for him. And I, I have an affection for him. I love him. But the calling on him is to call on him as Lord. What does Paul say in the book of, Corinth, in the book of Romans? He says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. The confession is an agreement, a public statement that is an agreement for us. So when we say Jesus is Lord, that's an agreement with what Jesus has said about himself. Remember that when Peter called Jesus at the, the place called Gehenna, the gates of hell, 
He said, who does everybody say that I am? Well, some say you're a prophet. Some say Elijah come back. Great. Who do you say that I am? I believe you're the Christ, the son of the living God, the Messiah, the one who came, the Lord. That confession in our life is everything. Because to believe that Jesus is Lord means that then he has lordship over my life. It means that he sits on the throne of my life, directing my life, and that all of my life then is is subservient to the wishes of the Savior. So when we talk about this, Jesus is saying today, there is no middle ground. There's no place for you to have affection for me. There's no place for you to be amazed by me. There's no place for you just to be interested in me. The only thing that you may do is to be with me. And for you to be with me, it means that I must be your Lord. And so I want to ask you this morning. Has there ever been a time in your life where you are certain that you gave over the ownership of your life to Christ Jesus so that he might be the Lord of your life. Because for him to be the Lord of your life is the only remedy for the brokenness that we are experiencing with our relationship with God the Father. So has there ever been that time where you stopped thinking about what you thought was most important and you began asking those questions, Lord, what do you have that's most important? We often talk about it like this. There are three parts of your body that God has created, right? Mind, the intellect, the heart, the affections, and I always use my hands to talk about the will. So it's a, it's a mind, a heart, and hands. Mind, heart, and will. So intellect, affections, and will. To be saved, you have to know something. It's very important. You have to know that you have a problem with God, that Jesus came and died for that. Your heart has to be moved. But we're moved or amazed by a lot of things that don't change us. And that's where the will comes into play. I have to know something. I move to repentance, but then my life is given to Christ so that it's not my will anymore, but his will. Great news this morning is that the work has already been done. It was done on a cross when Christ was nailed to that cross and the sins of every person were placed upon him. The penalty has been paid The judgment has been satisfied. And the only thing that's waiting is you. Are you with him or against him? I want to invite you this morning, if you've never given your life to Christ, to humble yourself before the Lord and confess Jesus as Lord of all and ask him to save you. And the Bible says that he will and to give your life fully to him so that he may be Lord of your life because there is no middle ground. The kingdom of God is now. Why don't we bow our heads and ask the Lord in this moment to have his way with us. Father, as we come to this moment in time,
I want to pray for every believer in the room. God, I just know what it's like for me when I've lived trying to sit on the fence and and be shot at from both sides because the world is drawing me and, and I'm not living in accordance with your will and your ways. God, for that person this morning, this morning, I pray that this moment would be a line in the sand where they are with you fully. But Father, our prayer this morning really is for the one who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior. And our prayer is that in this moment, the real nature of Christ Jesus would be shown to them. Would you reveal yourself, Lord Jesus, in this room? Not as a good teacher, not as a miracle worker, not as a fable or a legend, a liar, a lunatic, but as Lord. And Father, we pray that in this moment, those who are far from you would realize that the bridge is open to get back home and that it crosses through Christ. Lord, have your way in this moment. In the name of our Savior, Jesus, we pray. Amen.